you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 18 and following Matthew chapter 1, this Advent season. We're being reminded of those original Christmas portraits. Today we want to take a, a close-up shot of Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. I wonder, do you, do you have all your Christmas decorations up? Everybody finish? Choir? Finish decorating? Everybody's... For the most part, it's good. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's these weeks or some people had their Christmas decorations up in August. So you have months to be able to uh, enjoy what are really close, memor- not memorabilia, but uh, John, what's the word for that? Things that are Im- important to you. Keepsakes. What's the, what are you saying? Stuff. Stuff. <laughs> Thank you, John. So you get all that out. For us, for our family, about 18 years ago, Danielle and I have been married for 19 years now. For 18 years, we've put out a nativity scene. And it was the nativity scene that is special to us because the first class that Danielle taught, a second grade class, gave that to her as a gift. And it was a really nice gift. And so every year we pulled it out of the box and we've set up Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus and the cattle there. Uh, and, 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 and so it's just this wonderful reminder. Now, 18 years in our family means that there's been a lot of moves and abuse and wear and tear, and the brunt of the abuse has gone to Joseph. And we have pets that have abused Joseph. We have wayward balls that Joseph has been knocked over. One year we were walking through in the place where the nativity scene was set up. Joseph took a great fall and fell and his staff broke and we weren't able to mend it back together. So we had a staffless Joseph one year. The next year, a wayward ball went flying across the house and that ball met as the object of its affection. Uh, Joseph, Joseph fell. He broke his arm. We... Uh, we, Danielle, mended it back together with some super glue. And, but if you just look at Joseph, he, he has never looked the same. He looks like he's grimacing. Looks like he, the, the, the break did not set right, I guess you could say. Two years ago, again, a ball. I, this is a whole other sermon about why there's so many balls flying around our living room. But with three boys, there are balls that are around. Joseph fell headfirst hit his nose, chipped his nose. It was, one, it was such a small nose, you can't put it back together. And so uh, our Joseph has had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put him back together again. And so we put him back up there and it just, he just looked, he looked abused, he looked neglected. A couple weeks ago, I was looking at the manger scene and I, I really hadn't paid much attention to it. And I looked and I thought, boy, Joseph, is looking good. I mean, it just, his staff looks good. His arm is healed. His nose, I mean, he's had some, you know, work done on his nose and it's, it's, he looks good. And I asked Danielle, I said, how does, how has Joseph been restored to his, his original glory? And she said, oh yeah, we, Joseph went to manger heaven. We threw him away and we, Joseph now is a stand-in shepherd is Joseph right there. And it looks good. He looks really good. And, 
But I thought about that because I didn't even notice. I felt sorry because he's been a part of our family for 18 years. And I didn't even notice that he's left us. I didn't notice that he was gone. I had to ask Danielle about it, which is a parable for a lot of things in life that I don't notice. But that's neither here nor there. And so I asked her and I thought to myself, well, this is, this is really illustrative. We know what to do with baby Jesus in the Christmas story. We get a lot of attention to Mary. The shepherds show up. I mean, we, we even can get Herod into the story. But oftentimes we just, we just overlook Joseph. We don't really know what to do with Joseph. And it's not necessarily by intentional neglect, but it's just a lack of attention that we give to Joseph. We don't, we don't pause and ponder his role in that original Christmas portrait. Who was Joseph? What does Joseph have to teach you and me? Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, reads... Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. This is what we know about Joseph. We know that Joseph was a village carpenter. We know that if you would have looked at Joseph's hands, I mean, they'd been calloused. He was one that earned his living by the sweat of his brow. He was engaged to this young woman who is named Mary. She's this teenage girl from Nazareth. We don't know exactly the age of Joseph. We can, through uh, cultural customs of the Jewish world at that time, Joseph is probably between 18 to 20 years old. Mary is most likely between 12 and 14. And that gets us, it gets us off. A little bit because we have a nostalgic view of oh sweet little Mary and oh sweet little Joseph but it is not helpful to think of Mary as an eighth grader in the back of a history class passing notes to her friends no it, it doesn't help us to think of Joseph as a freshman at Sanford who's fretting over what he's going to major and what he's going to do with his life 2,000 years of cultural history the the maturity level of Joseph and Mary are, are far beyond what we would imagine an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old in our culture. Uh, they were ones within the original uh, context of the Jewish world who would have gone into this three-part marriage process. The first part was engagement. It helps us understand really what's going on in Matthew chapter 1. The first part is engagement. And again, don't think of engagement like a Romeo and Juliet play. It, this isn't two star-crossed lovers whose eyes meet when they go on a blind date. That, that's not what occurs here. They're most likely arranged into marriage, maybe even a, a decade before this moment here, maybe even longer before that. The second stage of that marriage process in that first century Jewish world would have been betrothal, an engagement period. It would last a year. And this helps us understand because in that culture, to be engaged, you would have called that person, Mary, wife. You would have called Joseph, husband. So they would call one another husband and wife, but they would not consummate their marriage until after the one-year period. The only way to break that engagement or betrothal period would have been through a certificate of divorce. The third and final would be for Joseph to actually be married to Mary. So that three-stage process helps us see a little bit more clearly what oftentimes we miss when we hear the Christmas nativity scene again and again. So Mary comes to Joseph in the midst of this one-year period that can only be broken by divorce and says, I'm expecting. 
I assure you, Joseph was not expecting to hear that news. That, that was unexpected news for Joseph to hear. And we can imagine the way in that moment when Joseph hears that news and she gives him what only has one time been given in human history, a virgin birth alibi, that Joseph is not buying it. Now, we can kind of psychologically analyze how he should have believed her in that moment, but, but this is a one-moment time in salvation history, so we can cut him a little slack to, in that moment, understanding, I can't buy this. The pain, the hurt, the confusion, the doubt, the frustration, the anger, all of that comes welling up in this moment where Mary says, I am having a child, and he is not yours. Now, in the midst of unimaginable, frankly, circumstances, really in the midst of unexpected circumstances, notice that Joseph still models kindness to Mary. Verse 19 again, look at it with me again in your copy of God's Word. Because Joseph was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So he doesn't believe the virgin birth story, doesn't believe that that could actually occur. But notice in the midst of this unexpected circumstance, he is going to divorce her and he's going to divorce her quietly. And you begin to ask, well, what is righteous about that? Some of your translations say that he was a just man. What's justice in the midst of this divorce? What is righteous about this divorce? Well, understand again the cultural context of this. Roman law, first century, to not divorce a wife who you believe to be unfaithful would have been akin to her becoming a prostitute in Roman understanding. Secondly, you have Deuteronomy chapter 22, the Mosaic law that says for a woman who is unfaithful to their spouse, that one of the, uh, of, of, of the penalties for that would have been Joseph to pick up the first stone and to publicly stone her. So, so this is the cultural context in which we read this passage that says, I am going to divorce you, but I am going to do it quietly. What are we reading in this story? Well, what we're reading in this story is Joseph saying to her, I, I will not harm you. I will not shame you. I will not ridicule you. I will not demean you. I, I value you. I want to protect your dignity. I want to protect your worth. There's kindness that Joseph is extending to Mary in the midst of these unexpected circumstances. There's righteousness, as the writer of Matthew describes Joseph as a righteous person. What, what is Joseph illustrating for us? Well, as believers, we need the righteousness of God as unrighteous sinners. And through the saving death of Jesus Christ, through the power of his resurrection, when you by faith trust in him, there is an alien righteousness that is imputed to you through his finished gospel work. We need his righteousness to be put right with a holy God. But as a follower of Christ, it's not just a forensic righteousness. It's not just a righteousness that justifies us, but it is a righteousness that continues to sanctify us. The, the fruit of the Spirit that is in us as we abide deeply with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it shows. It shows in what? Love and joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. So we see Joseph before this baby who was born, who will be the savior of the world, we see him exhibiting righteousness even when he's in the midst of an unexpected circumstance. Now, what do you exhibit? What do I exhibit in the midst of my unexpected circumstances? You know, we have this false dichotomy oftentimes of who we are and how we do define who we are. Oftentimes we want to say the true essence of me, the true essence of who I am, is how I respond when everything is going right. But in actuality, I think that the true essence of who we are is when we're pinned into a corner and pressure is applied and then what is inside us comes out of us. Now, none of us as Christians are perfect inside. All of us are a work in progress. So all of us have that flesh and have that world that is beating upon us. But the more of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, the more he desires for when you are in a corner, when I'm in a corner, and when life is out of the control of your hands, what comes out is love and joy and peace and patience, the fruit of the Spirit. And in a world, that is growingly antagonistic to the claims of Christianity, growing in skepticism about the veracity of the claims of Christianity, much of the pre-evangelism that you will do and I will do is when we are backed into corners and an unbelieving world sees what comes out. Now, this is important for you. This is important for me. I tell you, I saw how important this was when I was talking a couple years ago to a pretty rough guy who had been through a lot, seen a lot, but became a believer. And I said to him, how did you come to Christ? What were the circumstances of your conversion? And he said, I went to college. I didn't grow up in church. Really, I didn't like Christians really had a disdain for, quote-unquote, as he said, organized religion. And so you could imagine my frustration when I find out that the person that is going to be my roommate is a person that gets up every Sunday morning and goes to church. Now, he would invite me, but he didn't pressure me. I knew he was a Christian, but every night he wasn't asking me, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? He just kind of lived it out in this quiet way of obedience And he said, it was our sophomore year. It was around Thanksgiving. And my roommate received a call that nobody wants to receive. His mother had gone out and she was in a horrific accident. And she was killed in that car accident. And then this unbeliever who was the roommate who I was talking to said, I went home with him. I went to the visitation. I went to the funeral. And I watched the way my roommate wept cried, experienced this sudden loss in a a way that I could relate to, but there was something different about him. That even with tears, he could talk about peace that passes all understanding. And I could see it. And more than just seeing it, I could realize that I did not have that. I watched his dad, he said. I watched his dad bury there 
his wife, his bride in this way that no husband would want to be. And I could see him weeping. I could see the tears. I could see the grief. But there seemed to be that he was grieving as one who has some type of hope that is more than what's inside of him in his own self. And I realized I I didn't have that peace. I did not know the Prince of Peace. And do you know in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, there are people that are watching you to see what happens when pain and betrayal and difficulty and trials come your way. What comes out? And it's oftentimes in those moments when the light of Christ shines forth in those dark moments that it points them to the true source of that light. And that is not you, but that is your Savior. You know, it is in the darkest of nights that a billboard shines the brightest. And so it is in the darkest nights of your soul That God who works all things together doesn't waste your wounds, but he uses your wounds as a platform to show the power and the hope and the love and the peace that can only come from the Prince of Peace. Notice with me that Joseph this morning models kindness in the midst of unexpected circumstances. But notice also this morning that Joseph models obedience in the face of unexpected circumstances. Let's pick up the story in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, to divorce her quietly, the virgin birth story, in that moment, an undetermined time period, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, the prophet being Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Joseph woke up, verse 24, from sleep. And what did he do? He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Notice that the angel of the Lord comes to Joseph, and the angel of the Lord provides divine clarification to an unexpected circumstance in his life. And he needs some clarification. He needs God himself to speak into this uh, unforeseen uh, uh, in Joseph's mind's story. Because even in his mind, he would have thought, if the Messiah was to come, surely the Messiah would come to a rabbi who's revered. Surely the Messiah would come to a lawyer who is respected. But an average Joe? I mean, just an average tradesman, carpenter? who has no position, no pedigree, surely it couldn't be to me. And again, this is how God always works beyond our understanding. If you were to draft this story in the first century world, you would not have Joseph as the adoptive father of Jesus the Messiah. But he comes and the angel of the Lord says to him, it's not because of Mary's infant fidelity, but rather Mary has been faithful to be obedient to God's plan 
plans that are far beyond you and your bride to be here. So the source of her pregnancy is a a virgin birth. Now, next week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to focus on Mary. And so I'm not skimming over that. We're going to come, and the whole uh, focus of the message is going to be around this orthodox, essential of our Christian faith, the, the virgin birth of our Savior. But as we see the source, we also see the purpose. Notice that the angel of the Lord says, hey, I don't really care what you wanted to name your son. He's got a name. I've picked it out. His name is going to be Jesus. Jesus was a shortened version, as I said last week, of Joshua, which means in the Old Testament, Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation has come in your adopted son who is going to be named Jesus. And more than that, he is Emmanuel. That means God himself is with us in this babe who is going to be born. It was a lot to take in for Joseph. Now notice in this moment here, this average Joe, this carpenter Joseph, what is his reaction? Total obedience. Notice what's in this passage and what's not in this passage. What's not in this passage is Joseph doing what I would have done or you would have done. And that is, can we talk about this? Uh, Where's the fine print here? I've got some questions about this. Chapter one, no dialogue from Joseph. Chapter two, they go to Egypt to escape the homicidal plans of Herod. No dialogue from Joseph. Luke's gospel, we have uh, Jesus who is 12 years old. He gets left behind in the temple. We don't have Joseph talking then. What we do have in Joseph's story is a model of quiet obedience. I'm sure he talked. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we didn't need what he said. And maybe there's something that is illustrative for us. Because in our culture, especially a Christian culture, we all know what to say. And there is no shortage of verbiage in our faith. But oftentimes, there is a shortage of fidelity in the steps of faith. Sometimes we can say much more than we actually want to do in our life. All of us are guilty of that. And here's Joseph without much to say, but boy, is his quiet obedience modeling to us what we are called to do when we don't understand God's plans and when they're not our plans. Boy, these are unexpected circumstances. He wakes up from the dream and he does exactly what the angel of the Lord has told him in the dream to do. There is silence from Joseph, but one speaks, and that's the angel. He says, Joseph, son of David, and the first thing that he says after he identifies the recipient of this message is what? Do not fear. And it's in the passive voice. And what that means in the original language of the New Testament is, it isn't that the angel of the Lord is saying, uh, you need as a command to do this. The angel of the Lord is not saying for Joseph to do something. Rather, he is receiving something. He is receiving the promise of peace in the midst of these unexpected circumstances. You could paraphrase it by saying it this way. Do not be feared. Do not be feared by receiving Mary as your bride. And and I think as we light the peace candle this morning that there is something that is speaking to us about Joseph's quiet obedience and the promise of the angel to be with him 
and to give him peace in the midst of, of what is so countercultural. Joseph doesn't have any questions here. He doesn't come back saying, I've got to do one thing. Can you tell God that all I've ever wanted to do was to name a child? You understand in that first century Jewish world that it was the absolute right of the father. In our culture, most of the times, the father and the mother, they're coming together on some type of compromise about the importance and significance of a name. You didn't have that in the first century world. The father had the utter right and responsibility to name his child. And here's God through the angel of the Lord saying, he's got a name. I'm not interested in your great, great, great grandfather's name that you want to signify through this child. No, 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 no. His name is going to be Jesus. And again, what does Joseph do? He is completely obedient in the midst of him having to give up the rights All of his best laid plans are having to be put aside as he trusts and obeys the plan of the Lord. And this is illustrative of how Jesus comes into your life and into my life. That when Jesus comes into our life, he doesn't give us any longer the option to be the master of our life. He is not coming so that he can improve your old self. He comes into our heart to crucify our old self. So often you'll hear people say, yeah, I just need to get away. I got to get away and I've got to go find myself. I've got to go find out who I am. Oftentimes we live under the, the motto of, of Shakespeare's lines in Hamlet, to thine own self be true. And that you, in the essence of who you are in yourself, that that the most important thing that you can do is just look deep inside and figure out who you are. But notice that the plan of God, it didn't take into consideration Joseph's thoughts. Joseph is immaterial to this. God's plans are more sovereign and larger than him. And so in this moment, Joseph is having to crucify self by being obedient to God's command upon his life. There is a cross-shaped motto that comes over Joseph, and it isn't to thine own self be true, but to thine Savior be true. Our world is constantly saying to us, define yourself. Define yourself by your distinctiveness. Define yourself by your unique personality. Define yourself by the exaltation of the I and the me and the you. And the Christian message, which is so countercultural, not even not only outside of the church, but inside the church, is in opposition to the world. It isn't define yourself, but rather deny yourself. And for Joseph to be obedient, he has to follow in the words of C.S. Lewis decades ago that said, until you have given up yourself to him being God, you will not have a real self. That we find ourselves in submission to our Savior. We find out who we are as he is Lord over us. We find out who we are, not in proud standing and saying, look at me. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. In the poem of the 19th century poet. But rather, we find ourselves on bended knee, joining with the words of the apostle Paul. I am crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
In your heart and in my heart, there is a factory that works 24-7 and it produces idols and idols and idols and idols and idols that call us as a clarion call to bow down to them. And And there's a lot of specificity in these factories. And so the idol factory of your heart is going to look different than the idol factory of your pastor. But I tell you, it works and it doesn't take time off. 365 days of the year, there are idols that are being produced that call to you, bow down. This is what's most important. Bow down to materialism. This will define you. Bow down to careerism. This will define you. Bow down to your lust. This should define you. Bow down to your rights. This should define you. And ultimately, Christ comes and he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow after me. Now, we need courage to obey that command. We need to hear, do not fear, even when you do not bow down to the idol's that sing that siren song saying you will never find joy unless. And here's our Savior saying through Joseph's example that when you give up your rights, you find out who you are because you find out who he is. And there's some of you in this room, can I say all of us in this room need to be reminded that we're called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And those footsteps at Christmas, oftentimes we try to say, oh, look how cute and cuddly he is. And he is so inoffensive to us. But understand that babe born in the manger is going to grow and his path is going to lead to the path of the garden of Gethsemane. And in that moment in the garden, he says, not my will, but thine will be done. And as we follow in the cross-shaped path of our Savior, all of us must travel through Gethsemane. And all of us in this room must say, not my will be done, but thine will be done. And that is not something that we say once a year, but that is something that we must say every day as we listen to the idols that demand our attention. We need courage. We need to hear that angel say, fear not. Fear not. So here's Joseph giving up his best laid plans for God's sovereign plans. Here's Joseph giving up the idea of marriage that he had dreamed about and he had planned about. And in this moment, he understands it's never going to be the same. Fatherhood for Joseph will never be the same. He will never be the same. And when Christ comes into your life, you know something, you won't either. He's not trying to dust you up and make you a better version of your old self. He is coming to crucify your old self. So will you trust him? Will you have faith in him? Will you obey him when it means that you will trust the author of your story more than you trust yourself as the author of the story? Will you be like Joseph and trust and obey? Will you trust him when to simply trust him seems the hardest thing of all? Will you trust him? He is ever faithful. Trust him for his will is best. Trust him, child of God, for the heart of Jesus is the only place this Advent season for your heart to rest.
trust in. Let us pray. Remind us in the depths of our soul as the angel of the Lord spoke unto Joseph, fear not. Help us to fear not as we stumble our way into obedience, as we fight with the flesh and the world. It so easily entangles us. May we obey you even when we can't understand the circumstances that surround us. May we hold on to Christ in us, the hope of glory. May we trust you and obey you even when we're not consulted in the plans of our life. Even when things seem out of control, may we fear not. May the Prince of Peace pervade every aspect of our life. And may we walk in the confidence that you are God, Emmanuel, God with us. It's in your name we pray.